The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. The Capital Weekly Podcast is a production of Open California and is sponsored by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, greetings and welcome to Capital Weekly's podcast. I'm John Howard and I'm joined by Tim Foster. Hello. And our extra special guest today is the one and only Paul Mitchell, uh, Political Data Inc. And uh, he's our numbers cruncher and campaign strategist guru and just a lot of other things. So, Paul, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. You know, I have uh, to mention here, uh, the podcast listeners cannot see this. We're doing this uh, on Zoom. Yeah. And Paul looks spectacular. He's got some camera. It looks like James Wong Howe is filming uh Filming Paul and John and I look like we're on uh, iPhones. So uh, you're we had all to invest by hearing we're, just the podcast. But we're doing so many city council meetings and presentations online that uh, with the redistricting cycle, I just had to invest in a nice setup finally. So went well, all in with this setup. With this, is this setup. A, very a camera that attaches to your computer, or we're talking about a standalone, like a no, it's like a DSLR camera, full on yeah. camera. Okay. And then hooked up through HDMI cables. And it's actually something that all those gaming kids use, like when they're doing Twitch videos and all that, they have all these crazy yeah. setups. So we try to mimic some of what they have and and uh, it gets it gets comments sometimes. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, that's great. Um, so Paul, I've got a couple things I wanted to ask you. One, uh, what is the delay in data for the, cen- the census data? What is that? going to mean for people who do redistricting like you and for commissions like our commission in California? What is yeah, that? Well, How's this going to change the deadlines? Or if I any- mean, it's a real challenge. Um, so for folks who are listening, the, the actual deadline for the census is the end of this month. Uh, that's when they're supposed to have the redistricting data for states and counties and cities and school boards and everybody else to start doing their redistricting. And the normal timeline would be that there'd be a lot of community engagement, meetings, maps being drawn throughout the summer, and then the fall, plans being finalized, um, going to county registrars, county registrars taking their time to diligently assign all the precincts properly and you know put all these new geographies into their into their system so they can know who's running for what office. And it it's got this little lifespan. Um, but they've moved the release of the data back six entire months. Uh-huh. And so in some states that haven't prepared for this adjustment, uh, like Michigan, where we're doing a little bit of work, um, their deadline for the census, their deadline for the redistricting is September 17th. And they're not going to get the data until September 30th. So they're going to have to find six months to you know, figure out how to adjust their timelines and, and everything. We in California already, when we knew the data was going to be maybe July 31st, we already got some deadlines changed through legislation for local government. And we got some deadlines uh, changed by the state Supreme Court to allow our redistricting commission to be done December 15th. And so a lot of that stuff was already adjusted four months. Now the state has to work with the redistricting commission, local governments, county registrars, maybe even the election date itself to try to take, you know, make up 10 days here and 10 days there and 20 days here in order to figure out a way to get all this work done in, in 60 less days than the state's right now prepared for. Um, it's a 
tight squeeze. I think the state and folks who are working on, on this are trying to ensure that whatever happens with these deadlines, we don't like squeeze it too much on the front end so that we remove opportunities in the redistricting process for communities to engage and for us to have like a real fair, open, transparent redistricting. On the other end, they want to make sure that uh, county registrars can do their work. And then the voters, we want to make sure that that voters still have the 30-day window for early vote by mail, that there's still a process to make sure all the ballots are counted. So there's all these pieces, and it's not like we can just fix it for the state and say this is what works for the state because we also have counties, cities, school boards, water districts all having to do redistricting and uh, all these different kind of pieces that have to align. So it's a big challenge. I think we'll learn more in the next week or two as well, to how they're going to adjust all these deadlines. In a normal year uh, or in a normal decade, how much time would you have to do to draw the maps? How much time would the commission have to draw the maps and for folks like you to go through the data as opposed to this year? How much has it been compressed in terms of months? So essentially the process from the release of the data to the final plans for the state commission was six months. That's what the original deadline was. Um, now it might be, uh, it's probably going to end up being shorter. Uh, you're going to have, uh, October will be a month, presumably where the, the federal data will have come out, but the state is still adjusting it for prison population. Uh -huh. Um, maybe we can see draft maps in November. We'll have opportunities for input and, you know, participation through December and probably into January. Right now, the commission's deadline would be February 15th or 14th, but I think they might uh, figure out a way to get the state redistricting commission work done, you know, end of January, mid-January or something like that. So the benefit potentially is that even though we might have less time after the data has been sent out to, for the public to in, have input on draft plans, we're going to have a lot more time on the front end for people to come and do community of interest testimony around like their neighborhoods, their communities, what parts of the redistricting they want to keep together. Um, so I feel like the redistricting process will be fine at the statewide level. I think one of the challenges we're going to have is at the local level, adjusting a lot of local deadlines and getting a lot of this local redistricting done. We've talked about this before, but there are these reforms that have happened locally that have changed this landscape. One is um, so many cities now have gone to districts. They used to be at large. We used to, in California, do a lot of these things where we would vote for vote for two or vote for three, you know, like in a city council race. Those are going away. Um, and we have hundreds of agencies now that have districts that are going to have to redistrict maybe for the first time. Um, we also have so many agencies that went from odd numbered election years to even numbered election years. And it might take a second to think about this, but the, when you were having your election in an odd numbered year, you could redistrict in 2012 for 2013. But since you're now going to have your election in 2022, not 2023, you actually have to do your redistricting at the same time the state's doing it. So there's this narrower time frame. There's going to be more redistrictings. There's not more redistricting consultants. Um, so it's a real crunch uh, on this stuff. And we're going to have, um, 
you know, a period between, you know, Halloween and late January that's going to be pretty frenetic. I saw a couple of deadlines on the uh, uh, National Conference of State Legislatures, and they said that, uh, first of all, they said there would be data released to all the states at the same time, rather than have it put out, you know, in sort of a phased in uh, process. So, I don't know, is that good, bad, or indifferent? It sounds like it's pretty good if we all get it at the same time. On the other hand, some states have constitutional deadlines to have their districts, including California, to have them written up. So does this is this good for us? Does it hurt us or neither? Um, that part probably isn't as big of a deal for California as a state. Um, it used to come in six waves. And uh, for those of us that might be doing redistricting work around the country as well, um, I would really be happy if we were getting data um, in August, September, like getting every two weeks another set of states data um, in order to kind of pace all that stuff out. It's going to be kind of crazy on one day when the whole country's data just appears. Um, but for anybody that's just worried about their state or their city or their county, it's not so impactful whether or not Michigan got their data that day or not. You know. Another thing they said was... Uh... April 30th was a deadline for apportionment data. And September 30th was a deadline for redistricting data. So what's the difference? How does that- So apportionment data will give us the population counts for the whole states. And then we'll be able to calculate how many congressional districts everybody gets. Ah, okay. That's going to be really important. Also, when that apportionment data comes out, we might start to get some signals about how good or bad the actual census data is. Uh Um, But that April 30th, put that on your calendar. That's the day when you get to find out how many congressional districts California is going to have. So on May 1st, we're going to see a bunch of stories about how we lost a district or maybe even two, or I don't think we're going to have gained a district, but. uh. Yeah, exactly. We'll find out what the reality is. And, and really it's kind of like a tug of war right now between us and Texas, probably. Uh If Texas is supposed to gain seats, we are supposed to maybe lose a seat. Some people have been saying that we might lose two seats, um, but it's kind of a zero sum game, this, you know, the allocation of congressional districts. And, and uh, I think Texas probably did a pretty bad job on their, uh, on their census and their outreach and that we did a really great job in our outreach. And potentially that's what makes a difference between us losing or holding a congressional seat. Um, but the common wisdom right now is that we'll end up going to 52. We'll see. Okay. Uh, another question I heard, uh, or another, some more information. I, heard. I was talking to a reporter this morning who had talked to people familiar with this whole process. And uh, they thought the compression in the time allotted to do these things to draw the maps would result in the commission reaching out more to private entities to do models. So that there would be district, there would be more of that, than there would be in a in a uh, you know more normal year. You think that is that likely or not likely? Does that make any sense? Reaching out more to private entities to develop data models. Well, it's interesting. Um, one of the firms that the commission already hired or is hiring right now um, is a group that does a lot of data modeling. Uh, Haystack is the name of the firm. Uh, they joined with Karn McDonald. Uh, with Q2 Research, who was the uh, demographer for the last redistricting. Um, Since a lot of people are going to be listening to those commission hearings on on Zoom, I'm going to put this little uh, thing in your brain. Uh, We call her redistricting Bjork. 
uh, Karen McDonald. So when you're listening to redistricting commission hearings, um, it, it, she sounds like Bjork, um, <laughs> which is great. Um, she's UC she Berkeley it. person, right? She's UC yeah, Berkeley she's great. Yeah, yeah. Um, she's nationally one of the like real stars in the whole world of redistricting. And uh, like the open, fair, transparent process, she only does redistricting commissions uh, and she's just a real expert. And we're really lucky to have her in the state. And I'm glad that she's doing the commission work again. Okay. Uh, one other question on the politics of this before we move on. But uh, so what are the chances of picking up of Democrats picking up more seats or what I hear more and more of Democrats perhaps losing seats, reap see a chance to pick up seats they lost before, recoup them. Do you have any sense about how that's going to go this election in 2022? Yeah, so there's two parts to this. Um, One is the lines and the next is the election cycle itself. So um, first off, the lines. When we looked at 2011, uh, the redistricting process, it caused a lot of members to lose their seats in terms of like their district. Uh, They either got drawn in with another member or you know, they were the mayor of this town and that town is no longer in their district and these kind of disruptions. We saw out of 173 districts that were drawn that 60 incumbents were harmed by the redistricting process. So that's pretty huge. Um, and anytime you do something like that, it allows kind of the shaking up of the ant farm and creates opportunities, maybe where there weren't opportunities before or makes incumbents weaker in a future election or an upcoming election. And when you say you're making incumbents weaker uh, in a place with supermajority Democratic legislature and congressional delegation, you're inherently making Democrats, uh, you know, putting them in a position of risk potentially in their districts by just shaking all of them up. Um, I mean, on the congressional level, you can only shake up so many Republican districts. There's not that many to begin with. Um, the second piece is when those elections are held actually will have an impact on how volatile that cycle is. So in 2011, uh, the following redistricting, the following election year was the 2012 presidential. So you have a redistricting, then a presidential, you're like, okay, Democrats, you know, you should do pretty well there. Now you have a redistricting in 21 that's followed by 22, which is a gubernatorial first year midterm after the election of a president of the other party, which is kind of the prescription for, you know, a real potentially bad election year for the party in power. So um, the shaking up of everything means your you know, campaigns are having to go after new voters, having to understand other communities. Maybe they're losing bases of support in that whole thing that creates this volatility add to that that it's a gubernatorial election cycle it means that the that the baseline for democrats is not as good as you know it's as it, the lines are now and the election structure we have now so um i could see a lot of people saying that this is going to be something that results in a lot of turmoil for uh yeah. democratic candidates and and it could make some for some tough elections in the legislature and in the congressional um but I don't think anybody can say even just yet, especially since we don't have the data, what potential lines are going to look like and, and what those are actually going to mean in terms of outcomes. Well, the, the House is so narrowly drawn right now. Uh, I think it's 221 to 211. 
Dems over Reefs. It's like 10 seats, entire country separate Dems from Reefs in the House. I'm just wondering, does that mean California, I mean, say three seats flipped. That's a third of what they need to take the House, basically. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Like a lot rides on this. Oh, a lot rides on it. And um, you're going to have both things having an impact on this. You're going to have the mechanics of the line drawing process, which honestly doesn't benefit Democrats around the country. So many more more states are either Republican controlled and then states like California. We don't, you know, Democrats don't have the pen in California to draw the lines they want. So in a way, Democrats are kind of fighting with one hand tied behind their back in some of these states that they would otherwise have control, but we have commissions. And then a lot of the states um, they have full Republican trifectas, uh, meaning that the both houses of the legislature and the governor are all three of the same party. And uh, they have advantages in some states with the redistricting process. So um, it's going to be tough in the election cycle with, uh, you know, this midterm election after the new party in, pres- in power or even, you know, having recently won the House and more recently won the Senate. Um there's a lot there that makes you think like, okay, well, that's going to be a bad election cycle for Democrats. The challenges Republicans might face could be twofold, one a negative and one a positive. Uh, the negative is that their party could be very fractured with Trump Republicans and, and kind of more establishment Republicans at each other's throats, which could make for a bad election cycle for them in 22. Um, so that's, that's the kind of negative thing that's happening. The positive thing potentially that's happening is that we could be coming out of COVID. We could be having, getting to take these damn masks and throw them in the trash, uh, getting to go out to clubs and restaurants, making out with strangers on the street, like that kind of euphoria coming into election cycle might actually benefit the party in power that gets to, you know, basically reap the benefits of uh, having gotten out of this. It's I'm, I'm thinking often about how, when we learned about the Roaring Twenties, we learned about the Roaring Twenties. In another earlier chapter in a textbook, we learned about the Spanish flu, but nobody ever told us that the two might have been related, that part yeah. of the excitement and growth in the country in the early 20s had to do with the fact that it was coming out of this pandemic. Yeah. Um, so on a completely different topic, we saw a statement from Political Data Incorporated, which, of which you are a vice president. Um, said that uh, PDI was going to not accept as clients uh, or only accept as clients progressives, Democrats, and nonpartisan vote. Basically, no Republicans. So, seem to me, so you seem like you're sort of eliminating a lot of your client base potentially and a lot of revenue. What was the thinking behind that? Well, um, first off, the 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 company PDI has been around for 30 plus years yeah. and it was actually born by different data nerds from around the state who used to like fly into campaign, set up somebody's campaign database and then fly to another city and set up another campaign database. And they'd like meet each other in Burbank airport or run into each other. And they <laughs> kind of got this idea. Let's build like this big monolithic statewide voter file. That was a real achievement and has created a company in California that is kind of this unicorn. You don't see it anywhere else in the country. All around the country, data is partisan. Uh, There's Democratic data firms and Republican data firms. And uh, we 
as a company had stayed bipartisan for a long time, but we were noticing a couple different things. Um, one is that uh, the side of the business that was the Republican side was diminishing uh, as the Republican party is diminishing in California and the number of clients that we have on that side was diminishing. Um, and secondly, some of the coolest data and tech and tools that are out there in the country are being run by, by individuals who are building these tools for the progressive movement. And so we'd be sitting here as a company growing into this marketplace that isn't just sending out boxes of labels anymore. It isn't just, you know, the, the, it's not just data, it's data and technology. And we're looking at some of these really smart people that we want to hire and looking at these companies that have really smart tools that we want to integrate and finding these barriers because we couldn't be embraced by a lot of these progressive data technologies who wanted to work with us because they felt like, well, if we, you know, work with you, then that's just going to end up spilling over into, you know, our opponents being able to have those same, that same tech and tools. And so when it came down to like realizing both on their business perspective, and then also like as individuals, you know, uh, everybody knows I came out of being a democratic consultant originally. Uh, my wife is the CEO of Planned Parenthood. Um, even among the Republicans, they knew and accepted that, that I was uh, a progressive and a Democrat. Um, it just made sense. And right now with us being between election cycles, uh, it made sense for this to be the time to do it. So we've been working on it for a little while. We acquired a, a company called Outreach Circle, which is a, a progressive data company. Um, we're looking at other ways that we can work to enhance and build our technology and work on international market as well on data and really grow. So it's a real growth opportunity for us. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't think we're going to, uh, you know, really even see a lot of revenue loss from, from the Republican business because we're going to gain uh, more uh, of this progressive business that might have been a little blockaded from us because of the fact that we weren't uh, in this partisan data infrastructure like everybody else in the country. So is there a difference between data? Is Republican data different than Democratic data, different from nonpartisan? It sounds like data should be bloodless and the same for everybody. Of course, you draw your conclusions how you want to campaign from that base data. But uh, I mean, is there much of a difference? Well, so what's interesting is data... If we were talking when PDI first started, data was addresses and names and phone numbers on this big Cray server in the lot at the Warner Brothers studio where we rented uh, server space on computers from like midnight to 6 a.m. And, you know, we have stories of our staff like playing basketball with George Clooney while mail files would run and they would take hours. Um, but it's gone from being that to being all this other stuff modeling and tools and the apps that you run your campaign on and and the tools to integrate with social media and and so like data is no longer just data data now is data and tools and different companies have sprouted up to try to develop the best tools and a lot of these have been funded by progressive and cons conservative organizations so you're not going to get Carl Rove's you know data tool into PDI and sell to Democrats, and you're not going to get the I Obama know. data tool into PDI and sell to Republicans. Like it, it became a time where, um, you know, essentially coming out and embracing this change 
um, it will allow us to make our data and tools better. Now, in addition to that, I mean, just to be blunt, PDI has better data than anybody else in part because we've been around for 30 years because the, the tools that we have in the data to make sure that we're you know, following people's registration over time, having more data from local elections. We, we used to go and send teams into every city for every city election to go scan every person who voted. Um, and we were the only source for a lot of that data and still are the only source for a lot of that data um, that makes our voter file better. Um, so, you know, ironically, people associate with me with PDI and, and you know, they really appreciate the, the work that we do for them. But I couldn't just like walk out of PDI and tomorrow start up a new voter data company and have good data. It doesn't work like that. It is, it is great data at PDI because it's been kind of working at the same, you know, working on the same data for so long. What is a, what is a nonpartisan campaign? A local government campaign, campaign you know, city council races or, you know, school board races. Um, we provide those tools. We have thousands of candidates in local government races and uh, that are PDI clients. And I, I go and when I do redistricting, you know, I'll constantly have people, a little school board member or something like that saying, yep, I use PDI for all my campaigns. So they'll still be able to use PDI for their campaigns and local races. So nonpartisan means there's no D or R after their names. When but, they're running for office. But they're running, okay. There will uh, be, you know, like one of my jokes is that, you know, uh, Kevin McCarthy is not going to buy PDI data in Congress, you know, for his congressional race. Has he um, bought but, it in the past? Huh? When he was in the legislature here, did he buy it? I don't know. Oh, and as a member of Congress. Yeah. yeah. So the, but we, so, but we had to essentially fire all of our Republican business but Kevin McCarthy is going to use, there will be like a Republican infrastructure for data and campaigns yeah. that gets developed in California over time for them. Um, it won't be as good as PDI to guarantee that. But, um, you know, when, if, if McCarthy decided to run for Bakersfield City Council, he's also not going to come to PDI then either because he's going to have his, you know, Republican data firms that, that start using, that they start using. Yeah. Okay. Folks, you heard it first. Kevin McCarthy's running for Bakersfield City Council. So, and we're not selling him the data. <laughs> so, Paul Mitchell, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us today. Tim, did you have anything you wanted to add or ask? Or? Go for it, Tim. Uh, no. <laughs> no. Okay. I, yeah, I was, you know, just listening and learning. My only, sh I was wondering if this was going to be something where you, you and your team were watching the January 6th insurrection and said, oh, that's it. We're done with Republicans. That's it. That's totally <laughs> not what happened. So, the drama, this is not as dramatic as I was maybe thinking it might be. Yeah. It was already in motion at that point. <laughs> By the way, I'm going to get a camera like yours. Luckily, the podcast listeners can't see, but that's a great camera you've got there. So uh, we're going to do that too. What the heck? It won't make us look any better, but you know, the background will be better. You know, so Paul Mitchell, thank you very much. We will talk to you next time around. As usual, you really enlightened us. Tim, thank you. And this is John Howard with Capital Weekly saying, uh, we'll catch you next time around. Thank you. Thank you very much. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.